I just want to close our time on Noah and just give a little review. I'm assuming that some of you didn't catch the first two messages, but essentially what I said is you think about Noah, who was a flat kind of a character, but one thing we know about Noah is he walked with God, says it in the Scripture. So this meant he had an ongoing relationship with God, that, that they had this communion, this, this connection. And, a be, and, and, and the reason they had that is because Noah walked in obedience to God. I mean, if nothing else, what we learn from this story of Noah and the flood in the ark is that Noah obeyed God. And God gave him something incredibly difficult to obey him. <laughs> he said, I want you to do this. And it's like, not a little thing, it's a big thing. But Noah did that. And, and sometimes we want to make faith so difficult. And really what it comes down to, in, in, in essence, is it's obedience to God. To what he asks you to do today. Um, secondly, your faith, Noah's faith, affected not just him, but his wife and his boys and their wives. And so your faith will affect other, the other people around you. You don't often think about that. But it, and by the way, you don't have to be a parent for that to be the case. If you are just living your faith before other people, it is affecting them. It is, and, and it's either affecting them for good or not, I mean, essentially. So think about that, that your, your faith, you know, Noah's faith saved his family. Your faith is having an impact on the people around you. And then number three, faith is loving God for who he is not for what he can do for you. And I, and, I, and I tried to point out last weekend that you go to a whole new level of, of love and commitment to get with God when you say, God, I don't really need you to do anything for me. I just want to be with you. That's a different level of faith because many times our faith is, is I love you, God, because of or when or if. And what I, I think what the kind of relationship that Noah had with God is a, God is just, Love walking with you. I want to be with you. So um, the verse that we pulled from Hebrews is Hebrews 11. And it says this. Uh, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received righteous, the righteousness that comes by faith. So God... What he does here is he makes a covenant with Noah. And uh, this covenant with Noah shows us how we are to respond. Three ways that we are to respond. Because when they get out of, uh, you know, when Noah and his family leave the ark and they begin to, you know, Noah offers a sacrifice up to God. God makes a covenant with Noah. Now, a covenant is just very simply a promise. And I want to read that passage and then we want to talk about it. So, it's uh, on Gen- it's Genesis 9. If you don't have a, a Bible, we have these chair Bibles. So it's Genesis chapter 9, and it's on, found on page 8 in your chair Bible. And let me read it, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Again, we, we talked a little bit about that last week. That's essentially what God said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. We'll talk more about that in a moment. 
I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds and the livestock and the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will flood, uh, flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you, with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send the clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds. I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Now, if you just read through verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, it seems like what God's saying to you, saying to, to Noah is this. He's saying, okay, um, this is a, the earth is yours. This creation now is yours. You do whatever you want with it. Have at it. Seems like that's what he's saying. He says the animals will be afraid of you. They'll be terrified of you. Uh, but if you look a little closer, you look at the context. If you look at verses 8 and 9 and verse 12, God confirmed his covenant not only with Noah, but with the animals. God says, I'm not just confirming this covenant with you, Noah, and your family, but with the animals. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What I think it means is that God has tasked Noah and his family, and I think with us, to be good stewards over his creation. That we're to care for it. And and it's similar to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were instructed to care for his garden paradise, the perfect environment. And, And he says, care for it, take care of it. You will be my steward over this garden. And in the same way, I think that's what he's saying to Noah and his family. You are stewards over this part of creation, this creation. So, to, so, so he tasks Noah with this task. So today, we Christians, I believe, have a responsibility to care for and manage his creation. Christians are called to be earth keepers. You know, ecology, you know, being ecologically minded, being sensitive along those lines. Sometimes we as Christians push back on that. And and there is some craziness out there. I'll, you know, I'll admit that. But but here's very clearly we're told to be good stewards of his creation. I believe that a healthy and robust ecology begins with a Christian view of creation. What do I mean by that? I mean that this is God's world. This is his creation. The animal's the trees, everything belong to him, and that we're placed to be stewards of his creation. Now, one of the pushbacks, and I asked a question in the sermon-based small group notes this weekend. One of the questions or one of the pushbacks that people say was, well, you know what? God is going to come and he's going to destroy the earth, so it really doesn't matter what we do. Well, I'm not going to give you an answer. You're going to talk about it as a small group, so have fun with that one. But, 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 you, but, but that's one of the pushbacks you'll get. You'll get a pushback because people will say, well, God's going to destroy it all and recreate it, so what does it matter what we do? Well, how would you answer that? Think about it because that's one of the questions. Anyway, I believe a healthy and robust ecology begins with a Christian view of creation. Uh, the, the fall of man put a curse on the earth. And, and I believe partially that's why we have these natural disasters. That's why we have earthquakes. That's why we have some of these things that are happening. The earth is groaning. The earth is waiting for the day that it will be. See, I I said early on that our sin affects not just us, but the people around us. 
It affects creation. Adam and Eve's sin didn't just affect them. It affected the earth. The earth was under a curse, the curse of our sin. And the earth is waiting. Creation is waiting for the day that God will release it from the curse. Let me show you the verse. Let me show you the passage. Turn over for a moment to Romans chapter 8. This is on page 862. 862. Maybe you've never heard this before. Um, but this world is not... I mean, you, you know, when you see the sunsets and the sunrises and you see some of the beautiful parts of creation, you say, there must be a creator. You know, what you're looking at, in a sense, is a broken mirror. You're looking at a, at a, at a Monet that's been... Then it's been scarred. And you say it's beautiful. Yeah, but you have yet to see how beautiful it really could be and really will be. That's the point. Uh, because it's under the curse. It's, 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 it's struggling. It's uh, under the weight. Uh, notice how Paul puts it. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 19, page 862. For all creation is awaiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Now, why should... Why should creation worry about that? Well, he tells us. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse because of the fall. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. You know, one of the things that we're told is that... The, that uh, evolution is the teaching that uh, it's the survival of the fittest, right? Evolution is not God's design for creation. Look at it. It, it, it. The creation is waiting, looking forward to a day when it will join God's ch- children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all the creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Paul says it's just waiting for the day where it'll be set free. Because it's under the curse. Now, uh, we as Christians ought to be leading the pack and saying, we think this world, God's world, is valuable and precious and needs to be conserved. And need, we need to be good think ecologically. And we need to take care of the, the world. Uh, we certainly do. God's covenant with Noah reveals our responsibility to nature. Like Noah, we're called to be good stewards of his creation. That's the first thing we see from uh, it's just to me, it's interesting when you read the passage in Genesis where God says, and I'm making a covenant with, you Noah, and with the birds and all those. And basically, he's saying there's going to be a day where you'll be released. There's going to be a day where you'll be set free. That day hasn't come. So no matter how how beautiful the, the creation is, it, you have yet to see it. You have yet to see how beautiful it will be when God restores it, when the curse is lifted. Secondly, so the, the Noahic covenant, and the covenant again is an agreement or it's a promise that God, you know, many times between two parties, usually between God and man. Um, and so this one basically says that God says you have a responsibility to creation. Secondly, we acknowledge that we have a responsibility to each other. Uh, we acknowledge everyone as bearing the image of God. Notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. And I will require blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life must also be taken by human hands. 
Notice the last phrase, for God made human beings in his own image. So what he's saying here is that all human life is sacred. Why? Because it's created in the image of God. Everybody in this room is in the image of God. You are image bearers of God. Image Dale is the word, the phrase they use. And so because we all image God, it doesn't matter whether we're good or bad, smart or not, male or female, strong or weak, young or old, we all bear the image of God. Every one of us. Not just the people we want to bear the image and the person we like. Everyone. And this is an incredible truth because the value of every human life, whether they are moral or immoral, no matter what religious belief, we are all stamped with the indelible image of God. Every one of us. Every one of us. There's not a person that you'll ever meet that doesn't bear the image of God. Uh, that, that's that's got to change how we respond to people and how we treat people. God is saying to know unto us, every human life is utterly precious to me. Now, there's uh, Nietzsche uh, said this. Uh, I'll read you his quote. He says, we came from nothing and we're going to nothing. Yet we sit here trapped between two nothings, contemplating our nothingness. Well, that's really the conclusion, the logical conclusion you come to when you say there is no God. Because, that, you know, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon, probably towards the twilight years of his life. He basically uses a phrase and he says, everything is vanity or meaningless. Under the sun, meaning if you don't look beyond the horizon, if you don't see God, that dimension, that spiritual dimension of God, if you don't see that and you just see the physical world, he says life is meaningless. Because you live and you die and you're done. (laughs) That's essentially materialism. And that's essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is writing against. It's basically saying if you live your life for this life and this life only, it's meaningless. And, and basically, uh, Solomon goes through the book and he says, I tried wine, I tried women, I tried wealth, I tried, you know, building vineyards and, build, you know, making a name. I did all those things, but I, I came up empty every time. And he was one of the most, probably the most powerful uh, king of Israel that there ever was. He had, the kingdom was at the, the greatest uh, capacity as far as having the most, uh, uh, Land and the most control and the most wealth. And he basically says life under the sun, life without God has no meaning. So. So so Nietzsche is basically saying the same thing. We came from nothing and we're going to nothing. Yet here we sit trapped between two nothings, contemplating our nothingness. So he's reasoning, he's saying if our origin is insignificant, and if our destiny is insignificant, then everything in between must be insignificant. So it really doesn't matter how we live, what we do. That's where materialism leads. But what does God say? No, God says your life has meaning. Why? Because I give it meaning. God says you are valuable. Why? Because I say you're valuable. Because you're made in my image. You are, you're image bearers of me. So that changes things. 
He says, you're all created in my image and you're valuable to me that one day I will set things right. I will renew the creation and I will renew you. And what Paul's saying in Romans is they're waiting for the day where we will be renewed. Why? Because the creation knows that once we are renewed, it will be renewed. And it's waiting for that day. So he says, in the meantime, care for my creation and love and serve one another. See the image of God in in the people around you. In other words, he's saying human life is valuable. It has meaning. We have a firm basis for human justice, for treating everyone with dignity and respect. By the way, that verse, uh, verse six, where it says, for God made human beings in his own image. uh, Actually, the the whole passage five and six uh, has been used (laughs) by people who say, that uh, capital punishment is justified. It's also been used by people to say capital punishment is not justified. <laughs> so they've used it both ways. That passage has been used both ways. Uh, but what we get from this is that God says to Noah, he says, human life is valuable because human life is imaging me. And so it needs to be taken very seriously when it's treated devalued or disrespected. Um, So the biblical view of the image of God in man lays the foundation for justice and charity for the dignity of every human life. It has incredible implications for the elderly and for those born with special needs, for the sick and disenfranchised. Our world would say, what can you contribute? If you can't contribute anything, why are you here? That's where our world is headed, in in a sense. But but the the image of God won't allow that to happen. It won't allow us to make decisions based upon uh, gender, uh, race, about uh, education, about uh, mental capacity, about age. It won't allow that because it says every, every human life is valuable because of the image of God. And I would add the pre-human life in the womb. Absolutely. So, uh, the point we need to see here is as Christians, we're called to treat every person on this planet with dignity and respect because we all bear the image of God. So that's number one. Uh, the Noahic Covenant tells us that we have a responsibility to creation to be good stewards, to think, uh, be ecologically minded. Secondly, it tells us that we are to treat each other with dignity and respect because we're all made in the image of God. Number three, we're, we're to approach God by faith, because of his promise. Uh, look at uh, verses uh, 12 and 13, and then I'm going to jump down to 16. Of uh, This is, uh, again, Genesis 9. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant, a sign of, of my covenant with you, and all the living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of my covenant that I'm confirming with all the creatures on the earth. Again, this is the first recorded in the scripture covenant between God and man. Again, a covenant is just an agreement. It's 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 basically um, uh a contract or an agreement between God and man. Sometimes those are, are you know, those are, uh, God says, I'll do my part and you do your part. Sometimes God just says, I'm just doing it and it's going to happen. 
And this is one of those one of those times. In other words, God is saying, you don't have to do anything for this to happen. This is just going to this is going to be all of my doing. Okay, Um, And that's the case here. So uh, that's the first recorded covenant. Then we look at it uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. And that's a key covenant because what, and by the way, this weekend the sermon guide is going to talk about the different covenants and how they kind of work together and they they bring a story through the scripture if you follow them closely. But the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 is essential to understanding the Bible. We'll talk more about that in the next, uh, in a couple of weeks. But he gives a sign uh, of the covenant and the sign of the covenant is the rainbow, right? And there's three things about the rainbow. Now, uh, let, me, let me just uh, talk about the three lessons from the rainbow, and we'll close with that. First one is this, that rainbows are seen in storms. You say, Matt, you spent all week, and that's what you came up. Well, it's true. I mean, you're not going to be going out on a sunny day in the middle of Arizona and see a rainbow. Generally, you, you probably won't see a rainbow. You see it in a storm. Usually you see it at the edge of a storm, where a storm is coming or a storm is going. Rainbows appear when the sun and the storm come together. You don't see a rainbow until you're in the middle of the storm. Um, this, this has two implications for us. Some of us have never come to a place where we realize that we are at war with God. That there's a storm going on between us and God, that we that we have sinned, that we are fallen. And what we tend to do is we tend to say, well, maybe I didn't fall that far. I'll try to be good. I'll try to be better. I'll try to do more. I'll try to measure up, whatever. And uh, that's not going to fix it. This is a big problem. We are at war with God. We are enemies. And until we come to a place, until we see the storm clouds around us, until we come to the end of our rope, until we come to a place where we say, God, I realize there's nothing that I can do that will appease your wrath. There's nothing that I can do that, that, that will take care of my sin problem. Uh, until we come to understand that we're in the, in the midst of the storm, we'll never see the rainbow. You see, we need to see our utter helplessness before we can experience His glorious grace. So that's the first thing. And maybe you're here and you say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I can think of ten people that are worse than me. Well, that's good for you, but the bottom line is I don't think God's going to be impressed. You say, well, Pastor Matt, I'm I'm a member of Hope Church. Well, good for you. But I don't think God's going to be impressed with that either. The bottom line is we have to come to see our own desperate need. And, and so part of it is you do not, you're never going to see the rainbow until you see the storm. And in your own heart, have you ever come to a place and see the storm in your heart? Because you'll never understand and never grasp the gospel if you don't see that. Because you'll come to a place where you say, I don't really need any help. I think I'm okay. Until you say, I'm, an utter, I'm utterly ruined and I'm, I'm desperate and I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And unless God comes into my life, I don't have a chance. I don't have a prayer. Until you come and see the storm, the, the essence of the storm, you'll never, you'll never look for a rainbow. Secondly, some of you are in the middle of the storm right now. And you're looking for God and you're saying, where's God? I think Job 
probably said, where's God? I think Noah said, where's God? There's a lot of people in the Bible that said, and maybe you, maybe this week you said, where's God? I'm in the midst of this huge storm and I don't see God anywhere. You're looking for God and you say, where is he? It is at those times that you'll begin to see the rainbow of his grace in your life. Okay? There is where the rainbow of his grace best can be seen from inside the storm. There are people who are going through tremendously difficult times right now. And yet they have a peace. You say, how can you possibly have peace right now? And the answer is because they see the the rainbow. They experience the presence of God in the midst of the storm. They know he's there. They've experienced the power and the presence of God in their lives. And he carries them in those difficult times. See, we often don't find God's grace until we see our sin, our weakness, our insufficiency, our neediness, our darkness. But when we see that and we embrace that, then we can look and we can find his presence. We can find the rainbow. So that's the first thing. Secondly, rainbows point up. Say, well, there's another good observation, Matt. Good for you. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, in, in the passage we read, it says, I have laid up my bow in the clouds. Now, the Hebrew word doesn't say rainbow, okay? There, there isn't a Hebrew word like for rainbow. We've, that's kind of how we English translate it. Essentially, the Hebrew word is a war bow. It's a war bow. Basically, what God is saying is, I've laid down my war bow. I've laid it down. I'm no longer at war. I, my, what he's saying to Noah and what he's saying to the to creation, I'm making a promise. He says, I promise right now I'm laying down my war bow. I'm laying it down. And, and it's interesting, too, because it's not just that he laid it down, but it's where he's pointing it. He's pointing it away from humanity. It's pointing up. It's not pointing down at the earth. It's pointing away from the earth. Now, I know you can go to some waterfalls and stuff, and it's really circular. I get all that. Don't come to me afterwards. I don't want to hear it. Science nerds. But what, 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 what this really means is that God is not pouring out his wrath on humanity. He's, he, he's, he's going to somehow deal with the sin problem somehow. We're not sure how yet. Because here's the problem. What God says is, my wrath will be appeased somehow. I'm going to set down. Yeah, we, we said we're at war with God, right? Now he says, I'm going to set down my war bow. Who sets down their war bow in the middle of a battle? In the middle of a war. Well, God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to set it down. But the problem is, we're still at war with God. We still sin. And so we come, to, we come to the Noah and the flood story. It's like, okay, it's like if there was a director sitting in a chair and Noah and his family come out and say, all right, creation, take two. You know, go, right? And, and that's essentially what's going on here. You know, it, it's take two. But Noah and his family, we know are going to sin. You just have to read a little, little bit longer and you're going to see very quickly that's going to happen. Just like Adam and Eve. So if there's still sin and God still judges sin, which he does, how is he going to deal with it? The battle bow is pointing to heaven, which gives us a clue. It tells us a little bit about what's going on. So um, in Isaiah 53, 
we see the prophet. And this is years, years later. The prophet Isaiah tells us. How is God going to do it? He tells us. Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there, but it's on page 559 of your chair Bible. He, Jesus the Messiah, was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. One of the interesting things about the rainbow is it's a bow. There's no arrows in the bow. You notice that? There's no arrows in the bow. It's a war bow, but there's no arrows there. Rainbows don't contain arrows. The wrath of God has already been poured out. And Isaiah tells us where it was poured out. It was poured out on Christ. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. God is no longer pouring out His wrath on humanity because Jesus took the wrath that we deserve on the cross. Um, some people think, God is mad at me. God is punishing me. And I just say, no, God's not punishing you and God's not mad at you. God already punished Jesus in your place. See, the arrows of His wrath were taken by Jesus on the cross. The bow is empty because Jesus has already, because God has already poured out His wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. We now can have peace with God, not because of our behavior, but because of Jesus living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. So the next time you see a rainbow, just remember just those pictures that it's in the storms where you see the rainbows. The rainbows are always pointing upward. That means that that God has laid it down, but he hasn't pointed it at us. That the rainbow doesn't have arrows in it because the arrows were shot. And when Jesus said it is finished. And by the way, Jesus didn't say I'm finished. He said it is finished. The work that I came to do is finished. I took the war bows. I took the arrows. I took the wrath. I took the punishment for you. You don't deserve it, but I took it for you. I did it for, because I love you. Now, when, we, when we, we understand that, it changes our relationship with God and we begin to meditate on what Christ has done for us and it changes our heart. It changes our life. The point I want you to see is that our saving and life-giving relationship with God is completely, is completely based upon grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It is a gift from God. So what, what God is saying to Noah is really not just instructive for Noah and for creation, but for us. Because what God is saying is, there is a war going on, but because of my son Jesus Christ and the cross, you can have peace. Paul calls it peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace comes not because of anything we've done or are trying to do, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And like Noah, we get there by faith. We don't get there by works. We get there by faith. We trust Him. And so where are you? Where are you? Are you at a place where you've come to at one point in your life where you said, I'm dead. I'm in trouble. There's, I don't know what I'm going to do. Have you, have you understood what it means to sin against the holy God and realize that you have no way of making reconciliation on your own? That's like trying to save yourself when you're drowning. You're drowning. 
Drowning people don't save themselves. They need a savior. And so that's what God said. He sent a savior to save you because you were drowning. Have you come to that point? Because until you come to that point, you'll never look for a rainbow. You'll never look for grace. You'll never look for Jesus. You'll never say, without you, I have no hope. You know, until we become like the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, where he says, Jesus, remember me. Because I'm dead. I'm drowning. I don't have a chance. And what does Jesus say to him? Oh, if you could have only joined a church. Oh, if, you could only give, if you've only given 10% of your income. Oh, if you could only serve in the children's program. Oh, if you could have only had good church attendance. Oh, if you could only had some sort of a record. But you've got nothing. In fact, your record isn't a good one. No, that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Today you'll be with me. Paradise. Why? Because he placed his faith in Jesus. Have you done that? I mean, I'd like to make it harder, but it isn't harder. But the one thing that will keep you from heaven is pride. I can do it. I'll work harder. I'll try. I'll be good enough. No, you won't. No, you won't. Until you come to your, come before God and say, God, I am absolutely a lost sinner without your salvation, without your Savior, your Son, Savior, I am dead. But the good news is when we come to Him, we will find that grace. We will find that rainbow. And we will understand what He did for us. And when we begin to understand what He did for us, then we begin to... See, here's a couple of things. Now close with these thoughts. You don't have the capacity to be a good steward of this earth. You don't. Because you think it's yours to use and abuse. You don't see it as His. And that you're a steward, not just of this earth, but of everything that He's given you. Number two, you don't have the capacity to look past people's weaknesses and to see the image of God. You don't have that capacity within you. It is only when God changes your heart and He saves your soul that you begin to have a new love and a new perception and a new view of this world. You see the creation for what it is, His. And you begin to live in His world, not yours. You begin to see others as image bearers of God and you don't say, I'm going to like you because you're nice to me. You're going to say, I'm going to love you irrespective of who you are because you're made in the image of God. And I'm going to treat you with dignity and respect because that's what you deserve because you're an image bearer of God. You don't have that capacity in you until Christ comes into your life. But when Christ comes into your life, you not only have the capacity, you have the desire. So if that's not working for you, then you've got to go back to your heart and say, what went wrong? What went wrong? Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, help us because, uh, again, this is not about Avis. We're going to try harder. We're going to do more. We're going to work at it. No, no, no. This is about giving up. This is about saying... Jesus, unless you come into my life and infuse me with a new love and a new perception of this world and the people around me, I am just going to get I'm just going to stay in the box that I'm in. And the only way that I can break out of this bad attitude box of mine is that you change my heart. That you give me a heavenly perception. That you help me view this world and humanity in a different way. Instead of seeing people as who they are, 
You begin to see who they could be. You treat them with dignity and respect. We, we become good stewards of this planet and of this world. And we always look to you for grace. Because we know that when you impart your grace into our hearts and into our lives, we're going to change and we're to become more like you. So, Father, you begin to work in our heart. Give us the desire and give us the ability to love you, to serve you, to treat this creation the way that we should, to treat each other the way we should. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.